Welcome to the H&E Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through discussions on church history, biblical spirituality, the Bible, Christian living, and theology. Shall we get started? Welcome to the H&E Podcast. I'm Chance Faulkner, your host, and with me today I have Christopher Osterbrock. And uh, Christopher is the editor of the newly released book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. And so I'm excited to have him here to, to chat about Thomas Brooks and about Precious Remedies. So Christopher, it's good to have you. It is wonderful to be on. Uh, so uh, Christopher, why don't you talk, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you? What's your deal? Where are you from? What do you do? I am the associate pastor at First Baptist Hamilton, Ohio. And um, I've been there for about two years uh, serving and uh, preaching there. I was previously the associate pastor at Mount Washington Baptist in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, for about 10 years. Um, I was saved when I was 18. And um, part of that uh, comes from a a desire that the Lord gave me uh, to to meditate on Him, to uh, study Him and um, Him alone, uh, to to drink of His Word, and um, that led me to uh, Southern Seminary. At a at a point, um, I, I'd received my uh, master's in Old Testament and in seminary, and uh, that I had a direction planned, but the Lord called me to pastoral ministry. Uh, not to study Semitics in a in a closet somewhere. Um, not that that's a bad thing. Uh, I I envy that you know part of me, uh, but <laughs> but the Lord called me to to study His Word in a different way and to to preach it. So um, I went into ministry full time and um, was led to Southern Seminary uh, based on a, a on a kind of a pseudo conversion, if you will, uh, in, into the Reformed lifestyle. Uh, the reform, the doctrines of grace, and um, and Southern cultivated that in a way that uh, that was very enlivening, and um, I, I ended up getting a doctorate of educational ministry in biblical spirituality. Uh, my focus was on biblical meditation, uh, studying God's word uh, for the sake of um, of the spiritual life, growing in the spiritual life, and um, that also led me to to Thomas Brooks and his precious remedies against Satan's devices as well as uh, a dozen other of his treatises that, that detail the, the growth that is necessary for the Christian, um, how, to, how to really taste and uh, be invigorated by the spiritual life. And I feel like that's something that is so lacking. Um, there's such a strong desire within the church to, to really be fed. Um, and to, there's a desire there, as C.S. Lewis mentions, the desire that is heavenly that we, we long for on this earth, and we wonder why we can't find it on this earth. And, and the truth of the matter is that, that the Lord gives us that desire and fulfills that desire, satisfies that desire mm-hmm. through uh, biblical meditation, through um, the spiritual life, uh, the spiritual disciplines. And Thomas Brooks is, is one of those wonderful Puritans of old who, uh, who led his people to, to, to have that desire, to taste and be satisfied in that desire. Um, so, I mean, that, that brings us to today, being able to have the honor and joy of, of uh, editing Thomas Brooks. Awesome. So uh, why don't you tell us about uh, Thomas Brooks? Who was he? Uh, maybe provide a, a sketch of his life. Take as long as you need. 
Well, Thomas Brooks was, uh, I kind of have this broken out. I think I told you that chance in the four sections. So starting out uh, the first section, you can kind of see his early life. He was born in a rural area of London. There's hardly anything of his biography, but uh, what we do know is that he was enrolled in school. He was not from a very wealthy family, uh, but he ended up at Cambridge, and that's kind of where his life really starts, uh, where where we're able to trace it. Um, He was born in a rural area, but he ended up at Cambridge. He ended up at Cambridge with uh, John Cotton, Thomas Hooker, Thomas Shepard, some pretty big names. And uh, he he was at Cambridge during during a time where he was able to study Puritan ideas, and uh, so those took uh, took shape in his life, and they took shape in, in how he would be a minister later on. Uh, but after he uh, left Cambridge, we don't have any details about him graduating or uh, uh, matriculating somewhere else, anything like that. But he uh, graduated, and uh, then we have all these details of him uh, that lead us to believe that he was a, a chaplain in the Navy. And uh, a lot of that comes from the illustrations that he would use or from kind of autobiographical details that he mentions uh, in his writing. Uh, He also mentions in um, something we'll get to in a a minute, uh, he he wrote a treatise uh, when he first started at uh, St. Margaret's of New Fish Street, uh, which was a church that he would would be a part of before the the ejection of pastors, of of non-conforming pastors. He mentions how he spent 13 years in ministry and uh, kind of details that if the people wanted proof of his uh, abilities as a pastor, they should look back to those men that he converted in um, in giving the gospel and, and discipling them. And so, uh, though we don't have a, a huge biographical sketch uh, prior to his ministry, uh, we do see that he did spend lots of time as as a chaplain and involved within the government. Brooks makes all these mentions about the sea and about, uh, about being in the Navy, uh, about ships, uh, things that a, a normal person wouldn't um, recollect off the cuff. Um, you imagine when he's writing these treatises, um, if you know anything about treatises, a lot of times it's, it's taking sermons and just extending them, uh, taking a couple sermons and saying, okay, well, I've dealt with this topic enough. I'm not saying all the time, but, but many times, uh, you've got all of these notes and you want to do something really good with them. You want to you know, send them off and, and make sure that everyone in the congregation can really dive in. Uh, the wonderful thing about, about the Puritans and how they did sermons, how they, how they did Sunday worship, is uh, those people were expected to be meditating on that biblical passage the rest of the week or at least until Wednesday. And so a treatise was a wonderful way to be able to get your sermon into the hands of your people. And uh, so Thomas Brooks did that a lot. And as he's writing these sermons, as he's writing these treatises, he's just throwing out all of the stuff that he can, all of these illustrations uh, that he can, so that the people would be, would have a lot of food to meditate on, a lot of uh, cud to chew. Uh, to take Thomas Watson, which H&E is publishing his biblical meditation treatise, uh, chewing the cud, that's that's a very Puritan phrase for biblical meditation. Uh, so Thomas Brooks uh, leaves naval, naval chaplaincy, and he gets ordained, as you might say, uh, today. In uh, 1648, he becomes the minister at St. Thomas the Apostle, uh, where he would serve for three years. 
Now, if you, if you remember my figure, he says that he had preached the gospel for 13 years by the time he enters Margaret of Fish Street. That means if he only had three years at Thomas the Apostle, he had to have 10 years somewhere else. So um, that goes to the chaplaincy argument. So uh, he leaves Thomas the Apostle, and uh, we have several sermons, um, again, mentioning volume six of uh, Banner of Truth's works. He has evidently preached many sermons at Thomas the Apostle. But he enters Margaret of Fish Street, and uh, I find this very interesting. As soon as he goes into Margaret of Fish Street, uh, the first thing he does, he's about 31. I'm a, I'm a year older than Thomas Brooks at this point. But uh, so a guy like me uh, stands before this congregation and he writes this wonderful treatise called Pills for the Malignants or Pills to Purge the Malignants, uh, meaning uh, you all need to repent. You're all doing it wrong. Here is how I'm going to fix your problems. And immediately uh, this guy who uh, calls himself uh, a parishioner in this parish, uh, Richard Parham, uh, writes this 30-page, uh, you can find it online, 30-page dialogue on why Thomas Brooks is not meant to preach the gospel, why he is terrible for Margaret of Fish Street and uh, is going to cause all this division. And um, I, th I thought it would be interesting to, to the listeners to hear uh, w what is said of him. He says, uh, truly how or upon what terms he came in, I know not. Neither did I trouble myself with the choice either for or against him. But I thought with myself and some others, uh, we had as good to have him as worse. Uh, this is 1600s English, but uh, he goes on to say that, uh, that he could not keep quiet. Uh, this guy thinks he knows everything. This guy thinks that he can come in and speak to us in this way. And um, this is 1652 uh, when this, this man, Richard Parham writes this letter and um, he says, Mr. Bo Mr. Brooks uh, needs to have needs to be on trial. He needs to stand trial before all of these parishioners. And he talks about how um, speaking to the to the schooling that Brooks had. He says he he stands on the crutches of Calvin and like Lactantius. He turns our stomachs weak, uh, seeing one sort of people one sort of people deny him as a scholar. The others de deny that he has any qualifications to preach the gospel. And uh, to this, Thomas Brooks is standing in the pulpit, knowing that everyone has read this 30-page article detailing how uh, they should distrust him, how he has no qualifications, how he paid all of this money to become a scholar, going to Cambridge, studying with all of these other men. But we have no degree from him. All he does is say that he's a, gospel, he's a, a preacher of the gospel. He doesn't leave, leave his initials for anyone to know his degrees. Richard Parham brings all of this forward, and the next year we see that Thomas Brooks has written this wonderful treatise called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices uh, for his church. And um, I would love to go on and on and on about uh, Richard Parham's treatise. Uh, it's, it's very interesting and entertaining, uh, but suffice it to say, uh, there was a big stir because this man was coming in. Not only that, but Parham goes on to detail how uh, this man does not believe that the government should lead, does not believe that the government should have a say of the church. Thomas Brooks is standing before the pulpit saying, 
we should not follow conforming the church. We should not conform the church to anything apart from the Bible. And so he, ha- he gets these detractors right at the start. And yet what we'll see is that Thomas Brooks preaches, he continues to preach um, in, in the first volume of, uh, of the complete works. Uh, we have lots of details of him addressing this from the pulpit uh, and addressing it to the people. There's a, there's a wonderful little appendix to the memoir to, to his memoir by Alexander Gross that states how Brooks addresses the issue saying, I'm not going to apologize. I need to call people to repentance. I need people to understand where I'm coming from. I believe that I'm a depraved wretch, and I believe you are as well, uh, but we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to stand in the pulpit, mm-hmm. and I'm called to do that, uh, which is very bold. Um, I can't imagine doing that in my pulpit if I have all these detractors standing up and saying, no, you're all wrong. <laughs> I mean, part of me, when I when I was reading through Richard Parham's address, it's almost like, okay, I do need to chill a little bit. I do need to calm down and I get to know my people. Uh, but if you read the gospel, you you know, everyone is a sinner. No one is righteous, not even one. Um, so So how do you tone that? Um, and when, when you have the government hounding you, awaiting outside the door to say, well, we can eject you anytime we want, um, you've got to be bold because you get one chance. And um, you know, if you have that one shot, what, what do you do with it? So anyway, uh, he writes Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And um, as a treatise, I, I tend to think that that probably came out of a lot of sermons. Uh, he probably spent the year preaching through to them, and now he's ready to publish that and Precious Remedies goes off like crazy. It, it becomes a bestseller, uh, for, for lack of better terms. But Thomas Brooks is in the pulpit uh, during a time of plague. And I thought this was appropriate. I thought this was uh, stellar as, as I was reading through, thinking over this year. And as, as we release Precious Remedies this year, uh, thinking through the year that we've had, dealing with the coronavirus, dealing with uh, a plague, a pandemic in our churches, and if you've ever come into contact uh, with John Evelyn or Samuel Pepys, they're two men who were living in London uh, during the time of London's Great Plague of uh, 1665. Uh, now, now, I mentioned that in 1662, Thomas Brooks would be ejected from his pulpit, but his congregation, I would venture to say most of them are going to follow him to Mooresfield, which is down the street. There will be a non-conforming church, and Thomas Brooks was very loud he, he was a, a very loud man. He was remembered as such. He was remembered as being bold, but he was also remembered as being very practical for his people. And he was remembered as being a, a family man and, um, and loving and caring. And so uh, Richard Parham, no matter what he said about him and cases considered and resolved uh, dealing with uh, that short treatise of, of Brooks's, Thomas Brooks would go down as being uh, bold and yet caring, loving, compassionate for his people. And so when he's at Mooresfield, uh, he, he's not getting a pension. He, he's getting donations. He's getting funds from his congregation, not from the state. Uh, so I, I always think of that. Uh, he, he's serving a small church in the, in the middle of London uh, during a plague. 1665 rolls around. And one of the wonderful things that we get from the diary of Samuel Pepys, writing in August of, of 1665, this plague has been rolling around. Uh, we get mentions of it in both John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys's infamous diaries. And they talk about how uh, they, they saw in the news, in the, in the newspaper, 
there was about 180 cases of this thing that was like colic or like the plague. And then a few months roll around and they say, oh no, London, it looks like they've got 1,200 people that just died from this plague. And it goes further and further into the point where these men are writing about how, well, we probably ought to leave town. No one's wearing masks. No one's social distancing. In uh, August 30th, uh, if, you, if you don't mind me <laughs> mentioning this, uh, he, he says, I went forth and walked towards Moorfield to see, God forgive my presumption, whether I could see any dead corpses going to the grave. Uh, I, I don't know why this guy wanted to walk around and see who was all dying from the plague, but um, as God would have it, I did not. But Lord, how everybody looks, and the discourse in the street is of death and nothing else, and few people going up and down, that the town is like a place distressed and forsaken. We get that little tidbit, and yet we realize as we're reading through Thomas Brooks's uh, life that that he stayed with his church. He stayed and cared for his people during the plague, uh, risking both his family, his wife, and um, himself. And uh, he's not getting a pension from the state since he's a non-conforming pastor. Uh, he is relying on his people, and yet he is there with them in the trenches during this plague. And then the next year, the very next year, uh, a fire starts burning in um, the King's Baker on Pudding Lane in that same diary, Samuel Pepys, in uh, September of 1666. He says, uh, they tell me it began this morning in the King's Baker's house in Pudding Lane. It has burned down St. Magnus's Church and most of Fish Street already, which would be uh, St. Margaret's of Fish Street as well as the Moorfields, uh, which was where Thomas Brooks's congregation was. And uh, so 1666, a fire begins raging in London and uh, devastates the entire community, burns down the churches, burns down St. Paul's, burns down um, everything up to London Bridge, including Fish Street. And so Thomas Brooks is there uh, ministering to his people. He releases a treatise later on called London's Lamentations, in John Evelyn's diary, he says, here we saw the, the, the Thames covered with goods floating, all the barges and boats, boats laden uh, with what some had time and courage to save. Oh, the miserable and calamitous spectacle. Uh, for miles around, nothing. He ends it in uh, September 5th. He says, in this calamitous condition, I returned with a sad heart to my own house, uh, adoring the distinguishing mercy of God but I was like Lot among the ruins. Uh, still, the plague continues in our parishes. I could not without danger adventure to our church. Yet I went again to the ruins, for it was no longer a city. And um, I mentioned John Evelyn's diary because when I picture that, uh, these men were, were wealthy. They had diaries that were being published. They had the means to leave whenever they wanted, and they did. Um, I think it was Peeps who even mentions that uh, that people weren't wearing wigs anymore because they were they feared that the hair that the wigs were coming from was from plague-ridden people. Um, so think of how a how a um, pandemic can change the culture. Anyway, Thomas Brooks is still serving. Thomas Brooks is a non-conforming pastor with uh, no pension who is relying on his people, um, and yet because of his desire for the gospel ministry, has stayed. Uh, to, to witness London devastated by fire, like a ruin, not a city any longer, uh, staying even when the pandemic continues in spite of a fire that ravaged the city. He is 
giving messages every Sunday to his people. Not only that, but he knows his people well enough to convict them of sin, to call them to repentance, and to give them remedies for all the devices of Satan that could be thrown at them. It just puts me in my place as a pastor when I read through those diaries, when I put the two and two together, uh, seeing what Thomas Thomas's world was like at the time of writing. And uh, Precious Remedies uh, was published in, in 1652, and then it got a republication. And then something like that, after 1665, after 1666, uh, that is when you suddenly see 10 more editions being mm-hmm. published uh, because of the, the desire of, of uh, Christians in London during that time. They want to know, okay, God, you gave this to us. What, why? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing, and it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a small work. Pretty hefty. In our version, it's, uh, what, 325 pages? Yeah, it's, it's big. And um, I've been reading a lot of Sherlock Holmes, a lot, a lot of, so so I'm trying to deduce uh, what what is Brooks thinking here. And uh, we've got what we've got like 52 chapters, something like that. I mean, he's he's got 52 devices uh, that he's addressing, and uh, this guy is is not going to pull any stops. He he wants to know, okay, my people are are suffering. What am I supposed to say to them? And so he says as much as he can, <laughs> 300 pages worth. One of the things that I, that I thought was interesting um, in, in going through, so I, so I mentioned John Evelyn and Samuel Pepys. You can get the Penguin classics of their, of their diaries. Uh, but there's another guy in here that I mentioned in a footnote on page 281. Brooks goes through explaining who false teachers are. Uh, he gives um, seven characteristics of, or, or I call them seven characters, and uh, th- these interesting notions of... Um, of people who might try to persuade you uh, to a different, a different gospel. Is that Galatians one? <laughs> Don't let anyone um, bring this false gospel to you. Uh, that's, that's where he's, where he's coming from. And uh, in character five, the empty orator, he makes mention of triplicities and uh, you wouldn't know what that is. Uh, we're trying to sell copies here. Uh, you wouldn't know what that is without my footnote. Why this language of tri- triplicities? Uh, this guy named William Lilly, who lived during that time, and he uh, lived during uh, the Great Plague and the Great Fire, uh, he was a popular astrologer, and he had published this great work on Christian astrology. And he's trying to, uh, he's like a, um, he, he's like one of these guys who shows up on uh, on a Discovery Channel or, or something like that to try to uh, swindle you by telling you that he can talk to the dead. Uh, he's that kind of a guy. Uh, but William Lilly, um, he was a contemporary of Brooks, and he was brought before Parliament because of his uh, astrological predictions of the Great Fire of 1666. And uh, he used this language of triplicity, and he tried to get um, Christians to believe in, in astrology and make these connections. And he was an early occultist. And so William Lilly is um, not someone you need to bother reading, but it's worth noting that Brooks is making mention of him, saying that he is an empty orator. There's plenty of, of those uh, wandering the streets of uh, TBN these days, uh, trying to, to get us to look at something that is a different gospel. No, that's awesome. That's really helpful. I didn't actually know anything really about Brooks, other than what I've read in the book. But among his contemporaries, you have Owen, you have, uh, who is it, uh, Hooker, you have Cotton, 
Uh, I've heard of Cotton and Hooker and Stone and those guys until reading through Precious Remedies. I had never heard of Brooks. They're all sort of heavy hitters. Owen and Sibs especially, right? Contemporaries? Yeah, yeah. And they were both chaplains during during the Cromwell. And and so Thomas Brooks, when he was being brought before Parliament and uh, preaching, I, I just like to imagine that uh, that Owen and Sibs are, are you know, they, you've got these other guys in, in, people's, in people's heads. And uh, then you bring in a, a guy like Brooks. Let's talk more about the book. So you've so you've edited Precious Remedy Against Satan's Devices. Let's talk specifically about uh, the content. What is Brooks doing here? Brooks is trying to handle spiritual warfare. He is handling the topic of spiritual warfare, saying uh, there is so much evidence uh, to show you that you will be tempted in this life. Sanctification is not. Um, I raised my hand. And, uh, and, and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so now everything is going to be fine and, I, and I've, I'm covered. Uh, he, he is dealing with, uh, this is a daily battle. You are called to take up your cross and follow me, um, Christ. So how, what, what does that look like? Uh, what are the challenges that I'm going to face? And uh, Brooks says, okay, well, I'm going to go through and I'm going to say every single thing that I can think of that Satan will, will do or that Satan will throw at you or uh, whatever circumstance might come and, and you need to make a decision. I'm going to give all of these to you. And some of the time, his framework for that is to say, uh, here is a device that Satan will use. Here's a tactic that he will use. So therefore, you need to be prepared for it. Or you need to recognize uh, this tactic, uh, this device. And so uh, we, it's called precious remedies because the remedy is always going to have something to do with Christ, have something to do with uh, your your biblical knowledge or um, ability to to handle the Bible appropriately. And so he says, Satan's going to ta- attack you. How do you deal with it? Uh, what is going to be the remedy? And so he lines up all of these devices and he kind of formats it by saying, okay, these are, these are things where he's drawing the soul to sin. He, he wants you to sin, or he wants you to not strive for holiness, or he wants you to follow after these other uh, very wonderful ideas. How do I know? that this is not Satan seeking to tempt me. How do I know? Or um, I, I recognize that it's Satan, it's a device from him, but I don't have an answer. And so he lays out all of these devices, and um, in, in this format, in this new edition, uh, we tried to make it uh, very accessible. We tried to make it um, not so muddled uh, for a 1600s audience. Um, so he lays out a device, and then he lays out, Thomas Brooks lays out a device and then lays out a remedy for each of those devices, you know, either two remedies or 10 remedies, however many he he thinks that it ought to take. As you go through, part two is my favorite. In part two, you get uh, keeping souls from holiness. He he goes through a lot of different ideas here. Oh, what a world of Christians has Satan drawn in these days from religious services by working them to such sad, wild, and strange inferences from the sweet and excellent things the Lord Jesus has done for his beloved ones. And some of the time when he's dealing with a device, uh, he'll, he'll have Satan speaking. And it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Um, it's, you know, Satan seeking to speak to, to the people saying, Oh, you don't need to worry yourself about this or that. So what are the remedies for these false inferences of Christ's desire for holy service? He talks about in part two saying how, um, Satan would have you think that all you had to do was accept Jesus, and since you said it, since you raised your hand, or since you got baptized, 
uh, now you're done. And you don't really have to worry yourself about holiness. You don't have to deal with any of that. Some of the remedies he has is, uh, number one, in, in um, chapter four of part two, he says, to dwell on the scriptures that reveal all Christ has done for you. Um, and, and he does that, and, and the idea behind it is, if you really think of uh, Christ's affections for, for his people, those whom the Father gave to him, um, if you start thinking about that, then your affections will be raised. And, and the idea of biblical meditation, which was kind of the heart of Precious Remedies, is uh, the more you put the Bible in your head, uh, the Holy Spirit will enlighten your heart with it, and then your hands will move. That's the, the very Puritan idea of the mind, the heart, and the will are, are all connected. And um, so if you want to, if you want to be moved to holiness, you need to reflect on affections. The thing Jonathan Edwards falls down in the forest thinking of the Trinity and Christians today wonder, well, how can a person do that? Uh, I don't care about the Trinity. <laughs> you know, to Jonathan Edwards as a, as a good Puritan of New England, um, it's because he, he had affections. His affections were inflamed by the idea of God's love for him. So uh, part two here, the, the encouragements for religious service uh, that Scripture provides. Um, what an idea that Scripture tells us to do something, so we ought to do it. And then he considers the saints who performed religious duties before you. Uh, one of the things that I love about this book is uh, two ways that he takes uh, the, the prophets of old. Uh, you get that the list in, uh, in Hebrews of um, all the, the, the saints of old and, uh, and looking at their faith. And uh, Brooks details how... Well, we think to ourselves, well, we're nothing like those prophets. And Satan leads us to believe, well, yeah, you're nothing like them, so obviously God doesn't love you. And then there, you know, on the flip side of that, we see how, uh, how good David was. And even when he, even when he fell, uh, God still loved him. So I don't really have to do anything. God's got this. And if I fall into sin, so what? And so you have these two ideas of either I do nothing because God doesn't love me or I do nothing because God loves me so much. Uh, Brooks has a wonderful way of handling that, of, of, of saying, uh, if, if Elijah's still going to offer sacrifice or if David's going to repent, shouldn't you repent? And in the, in the first few chapters, he, he keeps calling his people saying, well, if, if David would repent, if Job would repent, even when he doesn't know what he's repenting of, uh, you know, if you, if you have these guys who are willing to do this, uh, to lay in the dust and ashes, uh, do you think you're more high, more high up the ladder? You know, what's the deal here? So, so Brooks is, is, is you, you kind of picture him at Margaret of Fish Street standing there the first Sunday calling his people to repentance. And they're all like, wait, what? No one's ever called us to repentance before. We're good guys, which is what exactly what Parham says. He says, we've got a lot of these petitioners who are saying, you know, I'm looking around the pews and I see a lot of righteous people. And yet you're calling us to repentance and we don't understand. You are, you young whippersnapper need to be put in your place. You don't know us yet. And um, if you're a Christian with affections for Christ, you realize I am depraved. I've sinned more today than than I can think of. Yeah, like I can't help but as I read through this, like you said, Brooks is extremely practical, right? So he provides the uh, the device, very short and sweet and to the point. And, and as a reader, I go, oh, I, I recognize that device right away. But he doesn't just leave you of here's the device. Like there's a theology now go figure it out. He says, here's how you are to fight that device. Here's the cure for that device. And so you leave both, you know, enriched of seeing, seeing the device, but also now I know how to actually combat that. And it's very specific. It's very pastoral. So I leave the chapter thinking, 
here are certain ways in which I can immediately apply this. Yeah, yeah. It is all application, certainly. And it's biblical application. I mean, he's, he's using these, these verses and, you know, at times he's using the, the verses as a flourish, <laughs> but, but most of the time it is just straight Bible. And um, I love the variety that he uses in his application. Well, here's one. So his first chapter is called To Present Pleasure While Hiding Poison. Satan's first device to draw the soul to sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. Satan yeah. presents the golden cup and hides the poison. His method is to present yeah. the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow from in upon the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow of the committing of sin. So as a Christian, as a reader, I know I see that right away. Oh, that's exactly right. He's, he's hit the, the nail right on the head. I know that from experience, but he doesn't just stay there. He provides, okay, where do we, where do we go from here? And, you know, he says his practical application is stay away from what might become sin. Sin has only fleeting pleasure, uh, but lasting sorrow, right? So get that in your, in your head. Sin brings the saddest losses of the soul. Sin's uh, very nature is deceit. So he's, he's training you of how to actually uh, theologically see um, this, but then also move it into application, like you said, going from the head to the heart to the hands, which I find extremely helpful and extremely encouraging and also extremely convicting. Yeah, it is absolutely convicting. And there have been, ever since I started working on this, and uh, Brooks says in, in his uh, preface to the treatise, he, he talks about how he suffered no greater difficulty than when he started putting pen to paper for this treatise, uh, that, that he, he recognized how difficult it was for him to write it and that it must be Satan keeping him from it. And he's, he talks about how when he realized that, it didn't get easier. It just got harder. And he, he talks about, I think to myself, what this addition meant to those who had just faced the plague and the fire. The, the remedy in chapter 9 here, page 79, uh, God gives afflictions to his people for profit and advantage. Way too often, not just in pastoral ministry, but just as, as, a, as, a, per, as a Christian, talking to another Christian or talking to someone who's not a Christian. Um, you have to answer that question, okay, what's the problem of evil? And I think Precious Remedies does a wonderful job addressing that and addressing why we would suffer. Why does God allow suffering? And for someone who just went through plague, who just went through a pandemic, who just went through losing their job, losing their house, losing everything to fire, um, what answer do I need immediately? It's to know that God has a purpose. It's not to say, oh, well, that was Satan and you know, God just wasn't there that day. God just didn't want to show up or... You just didn't have enough faith. And so God couldn't answer because you, you were too weak. How could anyone respond to that? Um, that's such a disgusting thing to say. And, um, and, and yet that's, that's the lived out theology of, of millions of people is, well, God wasn't there because I, I, I just wasn't good enough or I didn't have enough faith or uh, so on and so forth. And, and so when he addresses God gives afflictions to his people for profit and advantage. Immediately, I'm, I'm keyed in. I want to know. I want to know during a pandemic, how, how is God going to answer this? Mm -hmm. And um, hardships come with practicing holiness. Uh, just because you're practicing holiness doesn't mean everything's going to go gravy for you. He says, Afflictions serve to keep the hearts of saints humble and tender. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. So David, when he was under the rod, still spoke, I was dumb. I did not open my mouth because you did it. 
if anyone's read the Bible for, for two minutes, you're probably going to come across hardship, you're probably going to come across a minor prophet or two. And, um, and he says, uh, so when God has hedged it up their way with thorns, they then say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better than now. Ah, the joy, peace, comfort, delight, and contentment that attended us when we kept close communion with God. See that it is how we speak of our return to God. We will return to our first husband. He goes on to say over and over, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep reading it. Uh, again, affliction served to revive and recover decayed graces. They inflame love that is cold. They quicken faith that is decaying. They put life into withering hopes. How on earth can a Christian who is going through suffering handle that suffering without the Holy Spirit? It doesn't make any sense to any outsider. We want them to be insiders because of this. Because it is so contrary to the way the world works, it is so insane that the Holy Spirit would work in trial and inflame love and tenderness and mercy from God when yet everything is falling apart. And that's that otherworldliness. That is a, a supernatural affection. It, it, can't be, it can't be bought. It can't be made. It can't be stored. It is the Holy Spirit working in the life of the Christian to say in affliction, God's going to show me love. God's going to give me joy. Uh, God is going to give me something that is infinitely greater than anything that I would understand on this earth. It's incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about uh, uh, readership. There's other precious remedies um, that are printed. And so what makes one, my first question is, who's the uh, intended audience or audiences? And then two, uh, what makes this volume different than other reprints? Uh, well, um, I, I noted the, the idea of William Lilly and his triplicities. Um, there's several others. I, I could have spent years uh, annotating this, <laughs> but I wanted it to be just enough, um, just enough to not draw attention away from Brooks's own words. Um, but, but he's got such a, such a store of knowledge, and, it, and it, you see his education uh, throughout the, the references that he makes. And um, we want this to be for everyone. We want this to be for, for the layperson. It isn't going to be easy. It's, it's challenging. And it's not just challenging because of um, the word usage or anything like that. What's challenging about it really is that uh, this is a book for your spiritual life. It's a book that details spiritual warfare. It's a book that, it's a book that was difficult to write uh, because of the content. And so the content is, is a challenge and it's a good challenge. It, it presses. Uh, like a like a good wine, you want to press those grapes, and um, this will press your mind grapes. <laughs> this is uh, this is hard for the Christian uh, to to handle um, a really invasive lens into the heart and soul. Uh, but I think the readers can handle it. I think that uh, it was written for his church originally, and uh, and the popularity is what spread like wildfire because it answered those questions. And so if you have a question about your spiritual life, if you have a question about your, your particular sins, uh, those things that we fancy, uh, even though we know we're not supposed to, uh, this is a book for you. And um, what makes it so different is, is the amount of footnotes, uh, is the, uh, the formatting. And it's meant to edify the Christian. It's, to, it's meant to see uh, what was on the bookshelf in, uh, in Brooks's home before it was burned down, or perhaps what he was able to collect afterward. But it, it it's meant to show you uh, kind of where where a Puritan would be writing from, 
uh, those footnotes. Yeah, one thing I, I I really love about this is because you've you've written or you've edited so that that both the student of Brooks or the student of uh, Precious Remedies, the academic, can open it up and benefit greatly from these annotations and from these footnotes. I think there's over a thousand footnotes, which is quite a. But also, as a regular reader, you can just skip the footnotes. And if you want help in the reading, you can just look down, and you can either get historical background, or you can get the scripture references, or you can see Brooks's own footnotes himself. And so it's, I, I find it unique because you have both a place where the layperson can pick it up and benefit from it easily. And it's readable. They can access it. It's it's not something they have to really, you know, 16th century language and formatting and e- editing isn't going to be a stumbling block for them. Yet, you've edited in such a way that um, those who are studying books or maybe a little more purist will still benefit from from the scholarship that you put in into it, uh, which I find amazingly helpful. And the other thing, like I, I know past, uh, pastors who have picked up Precious Remedies, other versions, and not actually finished it. And the reason was is because in the original, it's not... So the original has five, really five chapters, uh, five chapters on a 300-page book. So that means that as a reader, I'm sitting down, and for me to finish one chapter of the book would take me hours and hours and hours to finish one yeah. chapter. But the way that you've broken it up is that each device is broken into a chapter. And so instead of five chapters, we have 40 chapters. And so even for myself, someone who reads, someone who enjoys uh, Puritan writing, someone who – to be able to just open it up, to sit down, and to have one idea. It's short. It's sweet. It's to the point. And five pages later, uh, I can put it down, and I can have one thing to think about, as you said, to even meditate upon. As I, I can put it down, feel like I've made progress in the book. I've, I've, I've moved on. I've got to a certain distance. And I can put it down and I have something to think about. I don't have a million devices to think about. I don't have a million cures to think about. There's one idea. I can think it through. I can meditate upon it. I can chew the cud and that actually inflames. So even, even in that, I think that's amazing for the lay person. And that's exactly what Brooks was going for. He, he wanted it to be, he wants it to be devotional. Uh, what's the point if it's not going to apply to, to my life? Uh, that's the practical, uh, practical theology of Brooks coming through. And um, we don't want to detract from that. And I think there, it's wonderful to have an edition on your shelf, uh, like Banner's um, Puritan paperback uh, that, that follows the, uh, the example of Alexander Grosser, who wrote the complete works. Uh, but that was written in the 1800s, and he was seeking to be purist, and so he's not changing anything in the format, not changing much in the language besides the, the um, typeface or the font, whatever you call it. Uh, but yes, like you're saying, this edition is, is meant to, to get the flavor of Brooks, uh, but to be in a modern style, but to be in a, in a much more uh, application-oriented uh, format. Yeah, it's, it's meant for people to uh, take as long as you need, because this is about your spiritual life. This is eternally important. Uh, take, take five minutes, read one chapter, sit it down, and, and chew the cud. We keep saying, <laughs> and tell us about. Uh, so, at the end of the book, you've you've created something for the reader or for the small group leader or the pastor. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so there's a a, a very little um, guide, a reading guide for you, uh, the the listener who is going to get this book. Uh, 
that is meant to be a year long study. And I, ideally, I think of this as, as someone finding a friend, uh, finding a pastor, finding someone who wants to read this through in a year. And you can cover one device a week, uh, or maybe one or two devices a week and uh, be grown by it. Uh, so you read through a chapter, you talk about it with, with a, a brother or sister and, and you're able to, to spend a week just nourishing on that chapter, finding that device in your life because you're bound to find it. Uh, this is exhaustive for the sake of spiritual warfare. So, uh, you're doing battle. You, you should spend just a little bit of time, not overwhelm yourself, uh, because this is, this isn't a marathon. It's a lifelong race. You're, you're taking one device and you're saying, I need to apply this. I need to think this through. Uh, where is Satan attacking me? Where is God's hand? Uh, how can I be cured of this? How can I be edified? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, I love that. Like, as I look at this, I've never been part of a book study that has actually people committed and gone through with it. And I'm probably part to blame on this too, is, is people have good intentions. They want to do a book study and they're committed, but we show up to talk about it. And who have you done the reading this week? No, I haven't done the reading this week. It's so, it's so frustrating and it can be so just counterproductive of what we're trying to do. But with this, it's like the way that you've set it up is okay. We have 40 weeks, which is a whole year, basically. And each chapter, if we only do one chapter a week, that's five pages a week. So that's, that's literally a page, like a page a day. And so even if you're just scrambling at the end last minute, you can read five minutes, you can read five pages in five minutes. So there's no excuse, none to come to the, to the reading and not have read it. And uh, like personally to, to pick up this every day and read a paragraph. Well, each, the way that he has it broken up is you have, you have the device and then each, Cure is about a page. You have a heading. It's it's beautifully yeah. laid out. So I could actually work through it. Uh, one, if I'm a slow reader, if I'm not like a committed reader, I could just do one paragraph or one heading per day. And at the end of the week, I've I've finished the chapter. I've had time to think about it, and uh, I just think it's brilliant. I think that what you've done here is is awesome. And for the worst, the people who are the worst at overcommitting. Um, I think this is, I think this is the way to go. Um, and the thing is because it, it's thick and so it looks intimidating, but I think the way that you've, you've done it is it's, it's wonderful for low commit mode group over 40 weeks, uh, very minimal commitment. And I think people would really benefit from to, to meet for coffee with a, a group or with one person. And just to talk about the five pages you just read, five pages, not 30, not 60, not like I need to catch up. It's like, it's five pages. And so uh, it's brilliant. Um, yeah. I love it. So if you're a pastor and you are trying to get people to fight sin and grow in their faith, and uh, I would, I would encourage you to pick up precious remedies. We will provide you with a discount uh, at the end of this podcast that will uh, help you. If you're a church and uh, you want to do a group study, we will provide you with a, a church discount um, so that you can get this in the hands of your people and uh, hopefully benefit from it. Because I uh, I love it. It's so good. How relevant is fighting sin? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's why it's a Christian classic. 